0: I'm Gregory Berg. Today's Morning Show podcast features an interview with Neil Bascom. Uh, Earlier this past week, uh, we broadcast a brand-new interview with him about his newest book called Faster. On today's podcast, I want to replay for you a morning show interview recorded way back in 2004. 2004 happened to mark the 50th anniversary of the first four-minute mile, and for that occasion, Neil Bascom wrote the marvelous book, The Perfect Mile. I want to mention also that this is a rare instance in which we got done with our initial interview, and I felt like there was still so much that I wanted to ask Neil Bascom about, So I contacted him to see if it was possible to have a follow-up conversation as well, and he very happily agreed. So you're actually hearing two interviews in one with author Neil Bascom. Here we go. We take a look today at one of the monumental moments in sports history, and some would say uh, one of the monumental moments in human history. It is uh, a day which occurred about 50 years ago in England, when the first four-minute mile was run by Roger Bannister. The story of that tremendous moment, that tremendous achievement, and all that led up to it, And some of what occurred after it is told so beautifully in a book called The Perfect Mile, Three Athletes, One Goal, and Less Than Four Minutes to Achieve It by Neil Bascom. Uh, This superb book is published by uh, Houghton Mifflin. And I'm very grateful that we have Neil Bascom with us for a few minutes uh, to talk about uh, this very interesting uh, and inspiring story. Neil Bascom, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: I was reading your book in the shower the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, that's where I read a lot of the books for this uh, job. And so I don't have the dusk jacket anymore. And so I don't have your biography anymore. And just a real quick question. Um, do you come at this story with any personal interest or experience uh, in, in track and field, in running? Because you certainly seem to write perceptively about uh, the many challenges that face these kind of athletes.
1: Well, I was certainly no four-minute miler, but uh, I ran actually cross-country uh, in high school, and I, and I had read uh, Roger Bannister's uh, story uh, at that age and just was very much inspired by it. So uh, I found that, that as I became a writer, it was one of those stories that I always wanted to write about, and uh, here we are.
0: You tell the story, actually, not only of Roger Bannister, but of two other runners that were very actively engaged with him, one an Australian, one an American, all very much in contention to be the first man to break this sort of mythical mark of the four-minute mile. How much did you know about the other two runners before you began investigating this story in earnest?
1: Well, I thought that this story would be primarily about Roger Bannister. I had known the name Wes at the American miler, and John Landy, the Australian, and knew that at this time that they were trying to break the four-minute mile as well. But I didn't quite understand the scope of this story and, and the scope of the race and how much each athlete pushed the other to achieve. And so ultimately I found after three or four months of research, having met with each of them and, and talked with them, uh... over several days that uh... it really was the story about three men and uh... and it really was a race and so the only way to understand why roger banister was able to break the four-minute mile was to understand how uh... west santee and john landy went about uh... their goal as well hmm.
0: This is, as you say, a story about a lot of different things. One of them is that uh, we are talking about a certain kind of athlete, particularly in the case of Roger Bannister, someone uh, that we might call a gentleman amateur. (laughs) Tell us a bit more about what this kind of athlete really represented, and maybe to what extent uh, Wes Santee and John Landy were also gentlemen amateurs.
1: Sure. I mean, the, the early 1950s was a pivotal moment in sport. It was really a watershed moment. It was the time when the amateur athletic athlete, the gentleman amateur, uh, was on its way out, and the professional was really the only way to be the best in the world. You had to train uh, many hours a day. The amateur athlete's role was, was uh, saw sports as, as a passionate hobby. Uh most famous story is, is the great story of Bevel Rudd, a, uh, a sprinter who showed up at the track with a cigar in his mouth, laid it down, uh, finished his, uh, his sprint race, came back, and picked the cigar back up. Uh, this was the sort of gentleman amateur, the, the idea of effortless superiority, that, uh, that, that sport should not dominate one's life, that it should be part of a very large life. And so there you have Roger Bannister, who only trained a half hour a day to an hour a day, he was in the midst of his medical school studies uh, during his pursuit of the four-minute mile and, and kept a very robust uh, life outside of that as well as his uh, acting. Um, so, so he really typified the gentleman amateur. West Fante was, was really on the line. He was, uh, you know, he trained three or four hours a day. He had a coach. He was uh, funded basically by his scholarship at the University of Kansas. That's not to say that he made any money off his, uh, his pursuit of athletics. So, but he was really on the, on the edge of, of the amateur to the professional. And John Landy, um, much like Roger Bannister, typified the gentleman amateur. He in no way saw sport uh, as a career. He knew that the time he turned 25, that was going to be it for him and that he needed to pursue uh, life outside of, uh, of, of running the mile.
0: We're speaking with Neil Bascom about his book called The Perfect Mile, Three Athletes, One Goal, and Less Than Four Minutes to Achieve It. One of the things that's interesting about this book uh, and about these three athletes uh, is, is also the story of of how they worked towards this uh, uh, incredible goal and who was in their inner circle helping them to achieve what they did. Uh, one of the interesting stories here is of Roger Bannister uh, who for most of his uh, active competitive life really had no uh, coach in the purest sense of the word. He was, of these three, certainly uh, what we would call an athletic loner, although ultimately he ended up achieving this not alone at all.
1: Yes, I mean, it's interesting about Roger Bannister. I mean, when when this story really sets out in 1952 after these three athletes fail in Helsinki, it's it's quite sort of simple uh, to identify them. Santi ran out of heart and emotion, Landy ran out of will and determination, and Roger Bannister ran from his head. He had intellectualized sport. But what you found is, as, the, as the race progressed and as Bannister came closer and closer and continued to fail is that he's the one who made the greatest character arc, as, as it were. He began to understand that he couldn't do it alone, that this lone wolf approach of not running with other people in training, not taking on a coach, was never going to get him Uh, to the point where uh, he was able to break the four-minute mile. So he learned from his coach, Franz Stample, who he took on in late 1953, only about five months before he broke the four-minute mile, he learned from him about will and determination. He, as Fran Stample most famously said, uh, his goal as a coach was to get his athlete to push past the point where he thought he was going to die. (laughs) And uh, it's a fabulous statement, but that really, you know, that emboldened Roger Bannister. That that made him understand that will and determination had something to do
0: with it. Right. The Australian John Landy, um, at for for a while, not at the time that he broke uh, that broke through that four minute uh, barrier, eventually, but for much of of his time as he really rose in the ranks, had a very offbeat coach who had a, a, a very 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 odd approach to. To, uh, guiding his athletes. Uh, tell us a little bit about him, his approach, and and what difference that ultimately made for John Landy in ultimately achieving this goal.
1: Well, the, his coach's name was Percy Sarity, uh, particularly in his early stages of John Landy's running career. And Percy Sarity was a, best way to put it is, a bit of a, a lunatic <laughs> at first, but he also had a tremendous motivating force on his athletes. Now, Sarity taught a number of very odd things. He had his uh, athletes running through knee-deep surf. He had them running up sand hills. He had them doing yoga and keeping a diet strictly of oats, uh, teaching them Play-Doh and various other things, all of which were uh, sort of out there. But what he was able to achieve with John Landy, as, as Landy told me, is that he was able to pull the discipline out of John. He was able to have him realize that, that he could achieve if he trained hard enough. And so that was the the greatest lesson for for Landy, and that carried through this whole race. I mean, nobody trained harder than Landy. Right. always wanted to be the fittest person on the track.
0: Uh, Sardi had a couple of interesting ideas. One of them, I thought, was uh, in in asking his athletes at one point to run through uh, botanical gardens carrying bamboo poles in each arm. He wanted them to run like primitive men. Uh, to to strip away some of what he maybe believed modernity was robbing from their essential abilities to run. Uh, But he also had this idea about uh, the athlete being a Stoughton, part Stoic, part Spartan. What did he mean by that?
1: Well, he he wanted running to be people's whole life. He he had an understanding that in order to achieve great things, you needed to sacrifice um, a great deal. And, uh, and so we came up with this whole idea of the Stoughton philosophy and uh, running as, as the dominant force in your life. And, uh, but, you know, there were all kinds of things that the Percy Sarity taught. Uh, he had his, uh, his runners also run like roosters at times. Um, he... he Propagilized that uh, you know you shouldn't don't need it to warm up that uh, and he showed that by pouring a, a jug of water over a cat and the cat bursts away <laughs> and says uh, you know look the cat doesn't need to warm up uh, <laughs> so he had all these ideas and he was testing his ideas on on his athletes and the Stoughton philosophy was was uh, wrapped up in all that and so he had his athletes come out to his camp uh, up on the beach and they would stay there night after night and and have lectures, and then run all day and it was uh, it was a camp hmm.
0: and you say at one one point uh, uh, on the by the tenth day of that camp, that gang of runners had bonded, they were both exhausted and inspired. I have a feeling you have to run track and know what that discipline is like and and what a grueling discipline it is to understand that state of being both exhausted and inspired.
1: Yes, I mean, they had, they had reached a, a feeling of uh, that, that their bodies could achieve a great deal more than, than they had ever sought out before, mm. and particularly in Australia back then, where where distance runners were considered absolute lunatics, and and why would you even uh, attempt to do something? So there was this overwhelming idea that it was actually unhealthy to, to train this much, and, and Percy Sarity, his great influence was to show that that was quite different uh, case. And, uh, and he was a man in his mid-50s uh, running marathons and ultra-marathons at a time when no one did that.
0: Hmm. The third athlete which you uh, explore, this was a new name to me. I certainly knew the name of Roger Bannister and, and John Landy very well. But I had not heard, I'm embarrassed to say, <laughs> of, of this uh, brilliantly talented uh, runner from Kansas by the name of Wes Santee. And what an inspiring story. He has. I mean, in many respects, the most inspiring story of these three athletes, particularly when we think about uh, the kind of home life which he had. Uh, He is fortunate. We are all fortunate that he ever became a runner at all. Explain a little bit about this uh, side of the Santee story.
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, this is one of the most touching uh, points of the story that I wrote about. I mean, West Santee came from a small town in Ashland, Kansas. Um, and his father was rather brutal to him. Uh, abuse uh, kept him on the farm, would not allow him at times to go to school in, in order that he'd work hour after hour on the farm. As I said, that he was one of those rare fathers who don't want better for their sons than they had themselves, and uh, and so West's father kept him from running and, and refused to allow him to race at a very uh, young age when when Santee, his whole, the only time he felt good about himself was when he was actually running and, and, and racing. And uh, eventually, Santee was, was so good and so determined to be a great miler that, that he escaped from Ashland, Kansas, and uh, and went on to, to the University of Kansas. Uh, and really, it took on uh, Bill Easton, the coach there, really took on the role as, as father to him. It was should, a very nice moment.
0: Absolutely. We should actually, I think, mention his high school coach as well, because I think it really underscores the critical difference which one determined individual can make. And in this case, we're talking about uh, Santee's high school coach at one point in a very critical way standing up to Wes Santee's father, or it's certainly possible that that young man's running career could have ended before he ever entertained a thought of going off to college. Tell us about that inspiring moment as well.
1: Well, uh, his coach, uh, a man named Mr. Murray, came over to the Santee Farm, and uh, and there virtually no one allowed it on the farm at this point—no strangers. And he comes up and and uh, and walks into the to the living room and tells uh, Wes's father that that his son uh, Wes should be running and that he needs you know this is a great opportunity for him and that he's not going to take no for an answer and uh, it turns out that actually west has to sneak out away from the farm that uh, next morning to to run in a race and when west comes back his father his father keeps him on the farm for 24 hours uh, plowing the field and uh, and murray hears of this and calls uh, santee's father and says listen it's never going to happen again i want you to deliver west uh, by truck uh, to school and to all his races, and uh, and didn't didn't allow him to say no. And uh, from that point on, it was basically a point where Murray stood up to the bully that was Wes's father, and uh, and that that made the world a difference to, in Wes's life.
0: We're speaking with Neil Bascom, and his book is called The Perfect Mile. Um, as someone who never has uh, run track or even entertained the thought, I think one of the things I really found especially fascinating about your book is that uh, you really reveal to us what this life is like, and particularly for very gifted and incredibly committed Track and field athletes. What is going on in the training process? I think those of us that just drive in our cars and occasionally <laughs> see somebody ride, running along the side of the road in track practice, uh, it looks, you know, almost laughably simple and basic on the outside, and of course, it isn't at all. And particular, in particular, this this particular event, the mile, presents certain really special. Uh, challenges and, and and problems. Tell us uh, some of the, the, the really interesting details which you are able to uncover in the way in which these three athletes in particular were training towards this great goal.
1: Well, for instance, uh, John Landy would, uh, at 11 o'clock every night, he would uh, step out, sneak out of his house uh, uh, not to wake his family and, and cross the road um, and... and very, you know, not able to even see the, see the ground underneath him, would run round and round a track um, every night. And just I think the key for him was he wanted to push his body just a little bit further each night. And that's the sort of love that he got out of running hmm. was was testing his body, was pushing uh, his to see how far he could stretch his discipline and determination.
0: I love at one point when you point out that he typically would, would run without a watch, I guess unlike other track athletes he said his effort was measured by the interplay of exhaustion and recovery he would he developed a a real sense of knowing just how well he was doing just how fast he was going just by sensing how his body felt
1: yeah i mean he had a 600 yard uh, grass track and he would run barefoot and he would run a 600 yard lap and then and then slow down i mean heavy with breath and then just at that point where he began to feel like he could he had recovered. He went another six hundred yards, and then he would just do this over and over and over again. And he would—he remembers waking up in the morning and walking to the train station to go to the university, and barely being able to walk. And uh, since no one knew why he was tra- that he was training so much, they were—they said, well, "Why are you walking so slow?" And they had no idea <laughs> that, that night uh, of, of the of the torture that, that he was putting his body under.
0: Hmm. One matter which uh, complicates the situation for Wes Santee once he is in college is that uh, he is expected by his coach, and I suppose rightly so, to be a full participant on the track team, which often meant <laughs> running the last leg of some relay race in which uh, his team was already hopelessly behind. and And Santee was not able to... Focus his energies towards this goal of the four-minute mile the way that uh, Bannister and Landy, for instance, were able to. That I mean, was a it, difficult thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as I said, Santy almost could never run fast enough for all the, 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 the obstacles that were being put in his place. Uh, you know, he, he did have his commitment to the University of Kansas Jayhawks. He was running in four races every weekend. And then you have the fact that uh, that he had a number of scholarship responsibilities. And then the the interference from amateur officials who were threatened by the fact that that West Santee, the most popular, one of the most popular athletes in the country, was was gaining so much power, and, and amateur uh, officials felt threatened by that. So they got in his way of the pr- pursuit of the four-minute mile. So it's 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 really a touching and, and at times heartbreaking story that that West Santee uh, uh, faced.
0: It really is. Is it it is is it the 1952 Olympics where? AAU officials uh, forbid him essentially from entering what would be his best race. He had already uh, qualified for the 5,000 meters, but his best race, and the closest to the mile, of course, was the 1,500 meters. And at the last minute, these meddling officials decided that West Santee was not an accomplished enough athlete to be worrying about two different uh, events, so they pulled him from what would have assuredly been his best event. I mean, how maddening for him and all who cared about him to have these officials... uh, ruining the situation uh, in the way that they did.
1: Oh, I mean, it's so true. I mean, he was the the fastest 1,500-meter miler in the country at the time and literally was at the starting line waiting for the time trial to participate in the 1,500 meters, and two officials grabbed him by the arm and pulled him off the track. Mm. Um, it's just heartbreaking.
0: You tell us that uh, Roger Bannister at some point realized that in order to really achieve this he was going to need what he called or you call in the book two pacemakers not in the standard way that we use that term now but two other runners in the race who could assist him explain very briefly what pacemakers would do in a race like this
1: well they were the rabbits They were the 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 runners that uh, that kept Bannister on pace through the first three laps. I mean, it's very difficult running the mile, and Bannister was the best, fastest mile in the country. It's very difficult to run a very fast mile from the front throughout a race. And so what he had was his two friends, Chris Chataway and Chris Brasher, who uh, Brasher would take him through the first two laps. He would lead, and Bannister would, would hang back a few feet. And then Chataway would take over the third lap, but that final, most critical, fourth lap, Bannister would have to take on his own. Uh, but he would have been helped through those first three laps by his, his rabbits. And this was, you know, this was not a, a, a unique uh, event. I mean, many of the the world records prior to that had been run uh, with pacemakers, and, and even today they, they still do that.
0: Although you point out at some point in the book that when it first came to light that Roger Bannister had attempted the four minute mile uh, using other runners in the race this way uh it stirred up a bit of controversy and displeasure if if i remember correctly
1: no you're you're absolutely correct i mean even bannister the day after he breaks the four minute mile um and is out celebrating uh he understands that the the real race uh his goal has to be won uh in a race against another person it has to be a real competition and uh and that, you know, yes, he's a great clock runner, as some of the press uh, criticized him, but, but could he beat the best in in head-to-head competition? And that was why the race three months after he breaks the four-minute mile against John Landy at the Mile of the Century in Vancouver uh, was the ultimate test, and is actually the, the reason for the title of the book.
0: Hmm. This uh this book reads like a suspense thriller I suppose for someone who might not know how this story ultimately ends. I think most of us know that the man of these three who was finally able to break through that barrier first was indeed the Englishman uh Roger Bannister. And uh but but it is <laughs> it is so suspenseful uh, and and we realize that had just details here and there worked out just a little bit differently. Even things as, uh, as seemingly trivial as the weather could have made a difference, and one of the other two athletes so easily could have been the first to break the barrier.
1: I mean, it was so interesting about this story is that when I, I had met these three men, and they were such different personalities, and they had different backgrounds, and different racing tactics, and different approaches to coaches, that I actually found myself rooting for each of them in each of these races uh, prior to May 6th, and, and hoping that, though I knew that wasn't the case, hoping that this would be the, the, the race for, for John Landy and finding that the wind was blowing too hard that day, or for West Antilles, and then the rain comes down and, and just, uh, you know, ruins the track. And so there, it, it made it sort of easy to write these scenes, and I'm glad that it had that effect, because uh, I wanted each of them to do it, because they each had their own reasons and, and uh, uh, for doing it.
0: We should mention that John Landy does also break the four minute mile and uh he and Bannister confront one another in a very dramatic race and they both break the four minute mile in that in that race. Bannister for the second time and Bannister wins the race. It's it's a thrilling, thrilling confrontation. For Wes Santee, uh he he whittles it down to tenths of a second above four minutes, but never is able to quite break down into the magic Three minutes and however many seconds—that is a barrier he is just unable to crack.
1: Yeah, five tenths of a second is what separated uh, West Santee from being the first American uh, to break four minutes. And, and five tenths of a second is nothing. It's a—it's uh, a little faster uh, start. It's—it's it's the wind blowing a little bit better. It's the track being slightly faster. Uh, it's uh, again—he it, was so close,
0: hmm.
1: and uh, uh, but he never did it.
0: We should mention that this was uh, one of the ancillary stories you tell is of the press, (laughs) in particular (laughs) the British press and the way that they followed this story with breathless excitement but in a way that could border on the brutal uh, in the way that they would castigate Roger Bannister for his failures or what they saw as bewildering choices on his part. I mean, the press did not make any of this easier.
1: No, they, they they crucified him on a number of different occasions, uh, particularly after the 1952 Olympics, where Bannister was slated to win the 1,500 meters. He was the last great hope of Britain taking home a gold medal, and uh, and he failed. And they just, you know, they said, uh, great, he can run past trees very fast, but can he win in head-to-head competition? Again, that, that whole thing about uh, is he a clock runner or is, or is he a competitor? And... Uh, you know, much of his uh, his ambition and focus uh, for redemption came from at start the press who were so brutal to him, and then the public followed, and hmm. uh, and he wanted a way to redeem himself, and by doing the Everest of sport, he was able to do it.
0: Hmm. Well, the story of Roger Bannister in the end becomes so inspiring, but all three stories are are, are tremendously. Uh Inspiring, And I think they all deserve the words of praise which were uh, afforded to, to Roger Bannister when he was honored with England's Sportsman of the Year Award. And, uh, and, and he was told in, in the presentation, it is given to very few people to do something in this world which will be forever remembered. That is what you have done. And thanks to your book, all three of these great athletes, with their great effort, have done something which uh, will always be remembered.
1: Well, I mean, this this was a wonderful book to write because I think, um, you know, John Landy and Wes Santee uh, deserved as, as much acclaim as, as Roger Bannister. And I think personally that the lessons that can be won from them as well as Bannister are just as important.
0: The book is The Perfect Mile, Three Athletes, One Goal, and Less Than Four Minutes to Achieve It, published by Houghton Mifflin and written by Neil Bascom. Neil Bascom, I congratulate you on a superb book. I loved every page, and I really enjoyed speaking with you about it on the morning show today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm speaking with Neil Bascom, the author of this outstanding book called The Perfect Mile, Three Athletes, One Goal, and Less Than Four Minutes to Achieve It. One of the things which I think is especially uh, helpful about your book is that we are getting a sense of the mile as a very special kind of running challenge and running event and I think most of us just blithely assume that uh, for, for all time there's been something called the mile and you give us a history lesson of the mile all the way back to uh, that point in history when someone first designated a, a length of distance as a mile. Tell us just a little bit about the history of the mile and what is helpful for us in, in, in understanding it.
1: Sure. I mean, it has a, a, a very long storied history. I mean, a mile came about from the Romans, uh, Roman soldiers. It was, uh, and my pronunciation may brutalize it, but Mil Passus, which was a 1,000 paces by Roman soldiers. And so the Romans marked roads all over uh, Europe uh, by uh, these, these, what became, mile markers. And so the first runners, actually, to run the mile were footmen. Who ran alongside the coaches of their uh, masters and uh, and began betting one another about who could go from uh, one uh, road marker to the next in the fastest amount of time. And actually, their their boss, bosses would bet on who would be the first person to do it. Hmm. And so then it, then it came to, to, to England as, as well uh, because the Romans obviously were there. And uh, and then they they designated an exact distance for the mile, um, basically in the early 1800s. And then it became a, a professional race. Uh, long before amateurs or, or Olympics or anything along those lines, uh, it was uh, it was an event for gambling. And so the best milers at the time were actually uh, professional foot racers.
0: Hmm. You mentioned the fact that one of the reasons why the mile was an especially popular event in, 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 in these kind of settings was because uh, you could fit a quarter-mile track really nicely around a typical cricket field or football field. Exactly. And so it, it was just a very practical way to, uh, to, to to run races. And so very quickly, uh, runners interested in making cash in these kind of ventures, it it behooved them to uh, specialize in the mile.
1: That's correct. I mean, it was one of the, the big betting uh, events, so... Uh, the best athletes uh, went uh, to the mile, and it just was a curious, um, you know, constellation of events as far as just the the mile fitting in a, in a cricket field, um, and then timekeeping began to get more and more precise. And so, so particularly in the in the mid uh, 1800s, when industrialization was taking over and everything began to uh, it, be, it began to be important to time things, and so. Uh, that that transcended uh, business and uh, and was popular in sports as well. And so records began to come to four, and suddenly you have mile records uh, being beat uh, year after year um, in the 1800s. And so as you as you move forward in the 20th century, it's already uh, one of these great events and looking for a, for the best time possible.
0: I thought it was interesting that you touch on a, on a moment uh, in the 19th century when a great race was called, uh, was run that was called the mile of the century. This is a, a long time before uh, the the races which are really focused on in your book, but this gives us some sense of the importance of this event at this point in time.
1: Right. I mean, they, they, they had the mile of the century uh, with a runner named Walter George, who was uh, who was an amateur who had to turn professional to actually run in this race. And it was, back then, I mean, 10,000 people showed up, which was huge. I mean, it was a, it was a huge event um, played out in London. So even back then, they were they were these great events.
0: Hmm. Tell us about how the, the, the thought of a, of a four-minute mile first sort of slowly uh, emerges on the scene in the 20th century.
1: Well, as as the the best mileers get get quicker and quicker, it began to be void uh, about that, that four minutes that, that could be the achievement. But it really wasn't until the nineteen twenties with uh, Pavo Nermi, who was just a just a brilliant runner of, of every distance distance. And uh, when he at the Olympics uh, began to, to run three events in, in world record time. A journalist said, "Well, you, you know, your next great achievement should be the four-minute mile," and and some people thought that that was just ludicrous and insane. And why, I mean, you, why even prosper some, something like that? It would be similar today to someone saying the three-minute mile was was quite possible, and and uh, Alan Webb, the American miler, would do it very soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just was was beyond imagination and uh and so once it, it began to leak into the popular imagination and writers began to, to, to say well this runner could do it and that runner can do it um these great milers began to to try to to be the first one to do it but they were 10 seconds away at at, at best at right point um it wasn't until the great milers <clears throat> like jack lovelock and glenn cunningham sydney wooderson and uh, gunder hogg and arm anderson uh, the best milers at their time, and they came in, in generations, basically, um, began to slowly edge away or chip away at the mile record to the point where it it, it finally got down to 414.
0: Hmm. You mentioned the fact that uh, during the 1930s especially, um, in, in the in the wake of, of Mr. Nurmi, that uh, as these new milers appear, uh, that... A, a new fever sort of sweeps the sport, and, and you say that in, in some respects it, it rivaled boxing in the way that people would pack a place like Madison Square Garden to watch people run around a track.
1: I mean, it, it was. I mean, there were these great scenes in the in the, the 20s and the 30s where they would literally pack Madison Square Garden, and it was such a a, a much more intimate event back then. It wasn't like today where you have stadiums where you're you know you're backed away from from the track and you're up in the stands. I mean, the the stands literally edged up to the track so that so that the the fans in the front could could brush their hands against the milers as they as they ran by. So there was a feeling as if you were part of the race. And you know, cigar smoke was all over the place, and and people were cheering and hollering and in a, a sort of hockey like atmosphere. Wow! And uh, it was it was uh, you know great sport.
0: Hmm. I want to mention the fact that, that uh, in the prologue of the book, uh, you touch on one of the reasons why the mile, at least at certain points in time, has attracted such attention. And then why, in particular, this four-minute mile uh, became uh, such a, an irresistible goal. Uh, I think at one point you talk about uh, the four-minute mile representing a certain mathematical elegance. Explain that.
1: Well, it did. I mean, it had this um, this balance to it, this symmetry to it. Four laps of the track under four minutes. It just it had a perfection about it, a mathematical perfection that I think just attracted people uh, to it. I mean, it it almost as, as if, as one writer said, it was almost as as if God himself had put it as the limit. I mean, as as having it so perfectly symmetrical, four laps, four minutes. Hmm. Uh, it just, it, it's hard to describe why, why mathematics, certain mathematical uh, uh, has elegance, but, but this certainly does.
0: Right. You also talk about how the mile is um, different from other races like the 100-yard dash, for instance, or the marathon, in that it kind of requires the best of, of both disciplines, that you have to be fast, to run a good mile but you also have to have stamina to run a good mile and that is also sort of an elegant balance
1: it is i mean you know when you have with with the sprinters you know there's only so much you can do with sprinters i mean they're they're naturally gifted and uh, you're either fast or you're not and then with endurance long long distance endurance marathon it's it's largely a question of how much you're willing to train and dedicate your life uh to being the best, but the mile falls absolutely in between those two. It's not only do you have to be at least partially gifted, <laughs> at, or at this level, very gifted uh, speed-wise, you have to have great determination and will uh, as far as running long distances. So it's, it, is, it falls in that, in that sweet spot in between, which makes it a wonderful race. And I think the other point is that in a mile race, uh, there is time for offensive and defensive moves, so there, there is a bit of thrust and parry, but there's only time for one offensive and one defensive move. So, so there is the, you know, the, the guillotine blade is hanging there as well.
0: We're speaking with Neil Bascom about his book, The Perfect Mile. One of the things you do in your book to set up the drama of 1954 is to take us back a couple of years to the Helsinki Olympics of 1952, and in particular to the disappointment which is tasted there by the three athletes uh, whom you, you focus on um, in this book. We've already touched on the fact that uh, West Santee was derailed by the meddling of officials that kept him out of what would have been his best event, the, the 1,500 meters. Tell us about the disappointments which uh, were experienced in Helsinki by Roger Bannister and John Landy.
1: Sure. Well, I think Roger Bannister of the three actually was probably the most devastated for having lost at Helsinki because he was expected to win. Um, in 1948, uh, he, he said, I'm not ready to run an Olympics, although his country asked him to run. And he said, no, I, ha- I want to wait to the 52 Olympics. I want to get myself in the best shape. And so he spent four years training and traveling around the, the world and, and competing against the best motors all in preparation in a very banster-like way of dissecting what was necessary uh, to win in helsinki and uh and then discovers that his training wasn't adequate because they added another uh, they added a semi-final into the into the uh, 1500 meters contest so he gets to that final race um, in the finals and uh and the whole country of england is expecting him to win and and needing him to win because england hasn't yet won a gold and bannister finishes fourth Hmm. and it is you know they crucify him in the press um they they, he's ridiculed on the street i mean it was awful Hmm. Uh, it was as if he had he had sacrificed england's honor he uh
0: he knew going in that the fact that this extra race had been added he was well aware of the fact that his, his chances of, of winning it all were, were very, very seriously compromised. So I suppose, in effect, his finish did not come as such a devastating surprise to him as, as it did for, for onlookers.
1: Oh, that's very true. I mean, he, as, a, as a friend who, who saw him from the stands said that he looked as if he was going to the torture chamber uh, when he started that race because uh, he, he was psychologically defeated before he even stepped on the track.
0: Hmm. How about John Landy?
1: Well, John Landy's a very different case. I mean, John Landy, uh, what happened to him was that he wasn't even expected to make the 52 uh, Helsinki Olympics. He began training with his coach, Percy Sarity, and improved his times dramatically and so so won a spot, uh, but failed to qualify in both the 1,500 meters and 5,000 meters in Helsinki. And that wasn't as, as devastating for him as the fact that, that his coaches and the, the Australian public were saying he shouldn't even deserve the spot in Helsinki. Not only that, but he and all these other athletes don't train hard enough. They're not focused enough, and they're not determined enough. And this, to to John Landy, was uh, you know, a terrible, terrible thing. And so he came back from Helsinki... With the idea that, that he would never step on the track again unless he was the fittest person there.
0: Right, he takes great inspiration from em- Emil Zatopek.
1: Yes, and I think the, the other significant uh, event, or the probably most significant event, was that he met uh, Emil Zatopek, uh, the Czech distance runner, who uh, gave him and, and anyone who was willing to listen his advice, uh, his training advice, which was very good advice uh, about interval training and and and. Focus and dedication as far as becoming the, the best in the world, and it was actually Zatipak uh, at the 52 Helsinki Olympics who, who without knowing it probably uh, spoke to the fact that amateurs who only trained a half hour a day were no longer going to compete against the likes of him who was training four to five hours a day every day of the week, and that was a significant uh, breaking point or dividing line uh, at that time, 50 years ago. Hmm.
0: It's a, a tough Olympics for, uh, for Britain, who does not, which does not do very well in, uh, in the medal count. I think at some point in the book you talk about them having to learn the sour lesson of uh, graciousness in defeat, because they taste that over and over again. On the other hand, Wes Santee is part of an otherwise tremendously successful American team. You say that in, uh, in not winning a medal, Santee was actually in the minority on his own team which uh, must have made that uh, especially painful.
1: Well, particularly because he was the best 1,500 meters runner in the country and didn't didn't get to compete in the 1,500 meters. So he felt like he could have won um, that event uh, or at least placed uh, a medal and uh, and never got a shot. So he was, uh, I think, also equally devastated. Uh, but of three, Bannister probably the most. Hmm. He had the most... Uh, expectation to win, and he even said the tra- that that uh, disaster is is not only your personal expectation being um, lost, but the the public's as well. Hmm.
0: Let's jump ahead to the title race of the book, that perfect mile, in which uh, Roger Bannister and John Landy are on the same track competing in the mile. First of all, I think we need to clarify the difference between this race and uh, the race where Roger Bannister uh, first broke the four-minute-mile barrier. Explain to us how these two races were so different from each other and why this second race represented, in some respects, uh, a, a far greater uh, potential accomplishment.
1: Well, the the breaking of the four-minute mile on May 6, 1954, was the, the event that, that we today as as you know, the, the world celebrates it. It was a human achievement, four laps of the track, under four minutes. But for Roger Bannister, that race wasn't his great achievement because he ran that race with pacemakers. And although that was perfectly legal and, uh, and, and allowed by uh, officials, uh, he knew that, that per, on a personal level that in order to prove that he was the best in the world, he had to win in head-to-head competition. And on May 6th, when he ran with pacemakers, um, he wasn't able to prove that to himself. So even later that next day, he knew that he wasn't done, hmm. that that he had always been called a clock runner, and by breaking four minutes, he hadn't yet proved that he was anything but that yet.
0: Hmm. Uh, on that track, on May 6th, 1954, how many runners were there?
1: There were six other runners, uh, but but none of them were even in competition. I mean, it became quite clear from the very beginning when Chris Brasher set up the lead and Chris Chataway uh, fell behind Bannister that these three were running uh, a four-minute-mile uh, timed race, and the other runners could not could hardly keep up. I and mean, they were so far above and beyond them on, uh, on performance level.
0: So they were not meaningful competition for Roger Bannister at all.
1: That is the point.
0: And, and, and the best... Runners on that track who could have been competitors were instead, in effect, yeah, they were partners to Bannister. Exactly. So that is not the case then for the so-called perfect mile. That is a uh, free and clear competition. May the best runner win, whoever that may be.
1: That's that's exactly the point, and and also the fact that you have two very different runners. Bannister being. Um, the, the pacer, the person who hangs back and likes to fin- uh, you know, deliver a withering finish at the end of a race, versus Landy, who uh, always ran from the front, always wanted to run his competition off their feet, had no interest in tactics whatsoever. He just wanted to blister from the start and, and to the finish. And so very different styles of runners. They both at this point have broken four minutes. And the world wanted to know who was the best. And I think Roger Bannister, more than anybody, wanted to know if, if he could beat him on on head-to-head competition.
0: In the wake of of that uh, race in early May, as uh, John Landy and uh, Wes Santee chase after that same four-minute barrier, a couple of things uh, jump out at me. One of them is that uh, Wes Santee, in uh, at least some of his attempts, uh would be clocked at a couple of different times. And uh, you tell us, for instance, about one occasion in which uh, he managed to uh, score a new world record in the 1,500 meters, and then they go on then to announce his mile time. That gets a little bit complicated for those of us that, that don't follow these things. Uh, explain how that worked.
1: Well, the, the, he would have, there would be timers, actually, at the, in a mile race. Uh, the 1500 meters is, is shorter than, than, than the mile by, by, by some odd yards so so Santi would actually cross the 1500 meter mark and someone would be there with a stopwatch and then he would continue on and finish the mile and someone else would be there with a stopwatch in one race in particular there was actually a finish line at the fifth uh, a tape at the 1500 meter mark and a tape at the mile mark
0: hmm.
1: so uh, it was just very interesting.
0: Well, and, of course, uh, it's, it's mostly a story of terrible frustration for West Santee, who never is able quite to crack that barrier. In this particular race, I'm reading about six-tenths of a second away, you say uh, that, that that difference was nothing, but it was everything.
1: I mean, this is how, how I mean, it, it was nothing. It was a faster start. It was the wind blowing in a little better direction. Um, it was, you know, just feeling slightly better uh, that day on the race. Uh, Jimmy, and he, not only did he come six tenths of a second short then, but he came seven tenths of a second short uh, a few weeks later, and then uh, he also came five tenths of a second short of the four minute mile. So, three different races, he was just painfully close and just never managed to do it. Hmm.
0: Finally, I would like to ask you a bit about the experience of encountering these. Three principles, and and of course others uh, around them. As you researched uh, this book, um, the the author's note at the end uh, makes us implies that you were actually able to sit down. I think with these three athletes, at least to some extent, were in fact you able to interview them?
1: Oh yes, I mean I, I spent uh, I spent six weeks in Kansas, uh, six weeks in Melbourne, Australia, and six weeks in, in London and Oxford. And so I probably sat down with each of them for at least hard to say but but about ten to twelve hours of interview time. Wow, uh, each of them, and then follow up questions on the phone or by mail um, if I didn't get particular information and not only you know what happened but what they were thinking that was what was most important to me. It was not I knew the events because I had all the newspaper accounts but they didn't reveal too much back then. Uh, and so I wanted to know, you know, what were their f- great failures? What were their motivations? How did it feel to be, uh, you know, have to wake up and go train all this time? Um, that's what I was focused on. And the other great point was that I they introduced me to all their running mates uh, back at that time. And mm. so I was able to, and they were particularly generous because no one ever interviews the friends. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so. Um, They, you know, they had uh, scores of stories to tell, and, uh, uh, you know, in very typical fashion, uh, were willing to reveal more than than the principles themselves. Nothing terrible, but just, you know, the little uh, vignettes that that really round a a person off.
0: Fifty years later, how do these three athletes... uh view those events of, of, of 1954. And I guess I'm, as, I'm curious about Roger Bannister uh, in that he has gone on to accomplish uh, other things in his life. What place does this have uh, in, in, in his in his own sort of personal pantheon? And how about the other two and the disappointment, which uh, I'm sure still uh, is with them all these years later?
1: Yes, I mean, for, for Santi and Landy, I mean, there's still a sense of, of, of disappointment in not having been the first one the bear actually for Landy I would say it was more losing in Vancouver than than not breaking four minutes first I mean in fact he had beaten Bannister's time and held the world record for for six odd years so he had a, a bit of, of something to hold close to his chest um, you know they they as I say in the book I mean they they look back at this event with uh, nostalgia and, and a bit of uh, not this old story again and uh, uh, you know they those two gentlemen, Landy, went on to have a very successful career and is now the governor of Victoria. Uh, Santy became a Marine uh, colonel as well as ran a successful insurance business. So they all did okay in, in life, and, uh, you know, they do treasure their, their running days a great deal. Bannister, I think, of the, of the three, I mean, he became a noted neurologist. Um, he had, uh, as, as he boasts uh, 14 grandchildren now and uh, I think places those uh, those events uh, of 1954 probably third, although they're the ones, you know, breaking the four-minute mile gives him the most notoriety and gets his name in the papers and on television. Um, he's he's most proud of his uh, career as a doctor and his uh, family. Hmm.
0: I am assuming that at some point along the way, uh, West Santee, uh, has had the opportunity to to meet Roger Bannister and and John Landy. They did compete actually in the in the in one race back in 1952, a relay. But uh, other than that, I I would hope that at some point they have have managed to encounter one another.
1: Sadly, they have not. Really, uh, Landy and Bannister have become friends, uh, but Santi uh, never, uh, for one reason or another, not, probably mostly not leaving the Midwest, um, you know never went to England to meet with Bannister or to Australia to meet with Landy, nor vice versa did they come to meet Santee. So he's had, as far as I know, no contact with them um, for all this time. And even this, you know, as we speak, uh, uh, you know, Landy's in Oxford uh, with Bannister. Uh, he went over to, to England to celebrate the breaking of the four-minute mile. And it's it's and another reason is because Santee never made the quote-unquote Sub four-minute mile club, right? I mean, even five tenths of a second. Mm. I mean, that little (laughs) narrow margin separated him,
0: and keeps him out of this special circle. Exactly. Hmm. Neil Bascom, the author of *The Perfect Mile*.